Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Our Bible reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to chapter 3, verse 5. At the end of this reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Please kindly respond by saying thanks be to God. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in utterance. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way, the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So now let's let's be brought back. Um, We have been going through um, the book of First Thessalonians, and just seeing how, you know, God calls us to wait, waiting for the hope of glory that Jesus is coming and returning, but also living in the in-between space of the here and now, the discomforts of life in the city of Lagos, the discomforts that we're facing in a fallen and broken world. And so last week, Dami showed us powerfully that the word of God works. And if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to please go back and listen to that sermon, The Word of God Works. And it's my prayer this morning that as the word of God comes forth, that the word of God will be at work in your life in the name of Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about today's sermon, I remember that, well, I didn't forget, but I remember that I grew up in what has been described as the golden age of Nigerian television. The period really from the 70s all the way to, I would say, Somewhere around 98, 99, maybe even a little bit of 2000, was, has been described as the golden age of Nigerian television. As you can see by my look this morning, I grew up at the end of that, okay? So I didn't grow up at the beginning. Some of the other people sitting in front here grew up at the beginning of that. But the golden age of Nigerian television, um, I don't know, you people, I don't know who you are looking at. I didn't look at anybody, okay? But... That period has been described as the golden age of Nigerian television because a lot of shows came up at the time that were really influential, just as, you know, technology, media technology was making its inroads into Nigeria. 
So think about shows like Cockro at Dawn, which nobody remembers. <laughs> Village Headmaster. If you remember all of these shows, you are showing your age. Um, checkmate. Checkmate, right? Um, I discovered last year that somebody had uploaded a lot of um, episodes of Checkmate, so you can really go and check out Checkmate on YouTube. It was really interesting to see actors like Bimbo Manro, who has now grown older, um, um, Nobot Young, um, and RMD, who hasn't changed really in almost 30 years, right? But the, gold, the, the great thing about that period wasn't just the TV series that we saw. It was also commercials that came out at that period, iconic commercials. Um, so some of you might remember the Joy Gale adverts. Yes. You might remember Planter. Yes. Planter was, was what Blue Band is now, something like that. Okay, but there was one that I actually quite remember. It's the close-up advert. So you might remember there was a particular close-up advert where there was a lady who was stranded on an island. I can't quite remember. I really searched for it. I didn't find it anywhere, but she was stranded on an island. We're not told how she got there. All we know is that she was there. <laughs> so now the question is, how does she get out of here? She doesn't have any boat. She can't swim. She can't do anything. And then all of a sudden, all of this within 30 seconds of the advert, there's a helicopter flying overhead. And so the helicopter is flying overhead, but she doesn't have anything to wave and, you know, wave at the guy. Do you, see where, do you see where this is going? Do you see where this is going? All she does is she just smiles. And all from down here, all the way up there. The guy sees it and he comes down and he rescues her. And the moral of the story is that you must always use clothes up before you step out of your house in the morning, okay? But I think there's a deeper moral to that story, or to the advert, that sometimes life happens. Sometimes life will leave you in a space where you really don't have anything to do. And the only way you can survive is how well prepared you are for that particular situation. You see, talking about being prepared for particular situations. Nobody is more prepared than pilots for certain situations, particularly plane crashes. Um, interestingly, I found out that about 50% of people who are involved in plane crashes survive. And what's the difference between the 50% who survive and the 50% who don't? It is preparation. And so a couple of years ago, in 2009, there's a very famous plane crash that happened in New York. The plane had just taken off from LaGuardia Airport and the Pilot was flying the plane all the way to somewhere around North Carolina, and all of a sudden, two birds collide with some part of the plane, and then the plane loses its engine, and the plane has to take an immediate landing. And the pilot takes forever to decide. Do you know how, how long he took? Four seconds. Four seconds to decide. He decides the only way that we can rescue, the, the pictures are really grainy, so you might not see it as well, but the only way that we can rescue the people who are involved in this particular situation is to land the plane on the river. He was prepared for it. And that story has now been made into a movie featuring Tom Hanks called um, Sully. It's been described as the miracle on the Hudson. But you see, what was particularly interesting about this situation is not just the skill of the pilot that was involved, but the skill of the other passengers and everyday people that were on the train and on the plane as well. 
And so a little time after the plane crash, the British newspaper, The Guardian, interviewed a couple of people who were involved in plane crashes. And one of the people was somebody who was on this particular plane. And they asked him a couple of questions. And I'm just going to read what he said. I think this is really interesting. He says, looking out of the window, I could see us rollicking back and forth. We were so high up. The houses looked like toys and the cars like ants. But we weren't falling. So I thought, okay, one of our engines has blown. But we have another engine. We're returning to LaGuardia. The pilot has everything under control. I didn't realize that both engines had failed. It was eerily quiet. Everyone was assessing the situation. It soon became obvious we weren't going to LaGuardia. We were headed for the water. And I started thinking, this could be it. I thought about my wife, Tessa, and our two children, Adeline, nearly three, and Zai, who was 12 weeks. And I tried to make peace. Then I heard the announcement, this is the captain, brace for impact, and everything suddenly got very clear. I had to stop thinking about death and start thinking about what I was going to do once the pilot landed in the water. You sat in this seat, I thought. You've got to get this door open. About 300 feet, that's 300 feet to impact, I started reading the instructions. There were six steps, and I read them two or three times, testing myself on each step and trying to envision myself opening the door. We were headed for the water fast. I cinched my seatbelt tighter and tighter and balled myself up over my overcoat. Then we hit the water. It felt like the worst car wreck you could imagine. We bounced and skidded to a halt. A lot of people had bloodied noses and eyes from hitting the seat in front of them. But my first thought was, this plane is sinking. We have to get everybody off as soon as possible. Someone next to me was trying to pull the door in. And I said, no, 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 it's got to go out. Thankfully, I just read that. I knew people would rush to the emergency exit. So if it had jammed there, there would have been a pile up. I managed to get the door open, and I grabbed the hand of the woman who was sitting next to me, Jenny. We walked out onto the wing, holding each other for support, the initial blast of cold air hitting us. Did you get that? He thought he was going to die, and all of a sudden he remembers, oh, this plane has instructions. And he reads the instructions, and that made the difference between life and death. He was prepared. Maybe a little late. But thank God he was prepared. And I felt that sometimes many of us go through life like people who are on a plane, which is all of us, and when the air hostess is reading out the safety instructions, we are just scrolling through our phones. Of course, this plane cannot crash. Of course, life can never happen to me. Of course, things will always work out the way I have designed. And so we keep on on the path of life until something happens and then it is revealed that we do not prepare enough and so we don't survive. You see, friends, that is the same thing that is going on in this text today. Paul's point is that life will happen to you. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen to you. Can I get that amen? amen. Not the kind of thing we want to amen, right? But the truth is that life will happen to us. And maybe some of you, you are in the in-between right now. Life is happening to you. Life has dealt you blows. You have red eyes and swollen noses and you are bleeding all over. And it seems like you are losing. Paul's point is the only way to survive what life does to you is by being prepared for when it comes. 
And so today we're going to look at the topic, how to survive when life happens. Because friends, life is going to happen to us. And what Paul says here to the Thessalonians, just like the instructions that this guy reads on the plane can make the difference between life and death. I pray that as we look at this text today that the Holy Spirit will help somebody here. And the Lord will strengthen somebody here in Jesus' name. This is going to be first of a sort of two-part series. Next week, we'll still be dealing with the, with the thoughts or the theme of when life happens. We'll be seeing how to thrive next week, but this week we're dealing with how to survive when life happens. But before we go ahead, let's just say a quick word of prayer and ask the Lord for his help. Lord, we're asking that you please come. We song that you are the word of life. So Lord, come now and make your words of life living in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. The first key Paul presents to surviving when life happens is to know that you have an enemy. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, you have an enemy? enemy. Turn to the next neighbor and say, you also have an enemy. Has life ever happened to you before? I'm not talking about the time when you mismanaged your um, pocket money and you went to bed hungry as a student, right? I'm talking about something that happened and you didn't see it coming from anywhere. Or maybe you saw it coming, but it still had this impact on you. It's this sense of loss, this sense of pain, this sense of aching that happens. Maybe some of us, are, we are familiar with that. I know something that happened in our extended-ish family a couple of years ago, and I cried to the point where you just feel like, I, I just want to go and sleep and die. That's what Paul is describing here. Look at verse 17. Paul says, But brothers and sisters, when we were offered by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Did you look at that opening sentence? It says, when we were orphaned by being separated from you. This is, on the one hand, is confusing because in verse 7 and 11 that Pastor Femi showed us two weeks ago, Paul had described himself as a mother and a father to them. So now, Paul, where exactly are you, guy? Make up your mind. Are you the father or the mother or the child? Which one is being orphaned again? But you see, that is exactly what Paul is driving at. You might be asking, Paul, are you confused? And Paul would answer, yes, I am confused. Because this thing that has happened has left me in such a state and in a place that I don't know what to do with my emotions and feelings anymore. Paul says, I was orphaned. We were orphaned. He and and Timothy and Silas, they felt like, men, something had happened so deeply inside of them that they they had been disintegrated at their very core. We were orphaned by being separated from you. But you see, and I know the question in your mind might be asking, so what is the cause of this feeling, Paul? What is this thing that has happened to you? He says, oh, because we couldn't see you guys. We tried. We wanted to come and see you. We wanted to spend time with you. We wanted to have fellowship with you. We wanted to come and encourage you. But somehow, this thing couldn't happen. And we felt so much of loss and pain and hardship. And of all the reasons that Paul could give, of all the reasons that you can imagine, Paul says in verse 18, we wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan blocked our way. 
We wanted to come to you again and again. We saved money. We checked out the cheapest flights. We ensured that everything was going well. We planned for this thing, but again and again, at every juncture, at every step of the road, Satan blocked our way. And this is interesting, friends, because in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, Paul had talked about how it was the non-believing Jews who were the stumbling block who were the people that were inflicting pain on himself and his fellow laborers and the Thessalonians as well. But now he's saying all of a sudden that no, it is Satan that is doing this. And it's as though Paul is showing us that when you are a Christian, when you are a believer, when you are a child of God, your very own plans, God's plans and purposes for you are so at opposite ends with what the devil desires for you that you have to realize that the devil will be blocking you and stopping you from accomplishing all the things that God has called you to do. You see, friends, the Bible presents three sources of suffering to us. One is God. And so in a passage like Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11, we are told that God often disciplines us for our own good so that he can make us more like what he has designed us to be, like his own children. So God sometimes brings hardship and suffering our way so that we can be refined and become what he has designed us to be. But secondly, we see also that sometimes the source of suffering or the cause of suffering in our lives is the fact that we live in a fallen and broken world. Sometimes we just happen to wake up on a bad day. Sometimes we just happen to have people who won't like us or things not working out the way we plan, not because God is against us, not because God is doing something strategic in our lives, even though he always is, but because we live in a fallen world and God has not yet healed and repaired everything to make it like what it will be eventually. And so in Acts chapter 27, Paul is traveling with his companions on a journey that God has told him to embark upon. And somewhere along the way, they run into bad weather. And this bad weather is such that it is going to disintegrate the ship. It's going to mess up the traveling plans that Paul has. What does Paul do? Paul doesn't say, oh man, God, why aren't you even involved in this situation again? Rather, Paul goes and prays. A bad weather situation hampers Paul's travel, fallen world, broken world. But lastly, as we see in this text, sometimes the suffering that we experience in our lives is as a result of Satan's work. Satan is opposed to God's plans and purposes in our lives, so he will do everything, everything, friends, to ensure that it always doesn't come to pass. Can I suggest to you that some of the suffering you're expressing is your life, in your life is as a result of Satan's work? And I know that in an educated audience like this, some of us are like, nah, you know, curses, do they really, is there such a thing? You just have to work hard. You just have to plan well. You just have to ensure that everything is in place and you trust a sovereign God and don't worry about the devil because the devil has already been defeated. But you see, the truth, friends, as we find in this passage, that we have a Satan who is very much alive and who very much hates you because you belong to Christ. And so I like the way a Christian writer named C.S. Lewis of a previous generation described it. 
He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Did you catch that? They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. Some of us fall into the camp where everything is the devil at work in our lives. You are driving and there's traffic. And then somebody hits you at the back. You say, ah, I knew it. They didn't want me to go for this interview. I knew it. I knew it. But then some of us are so ignorant of the devil's devices that we carry on in life as though we do not have an enemy. And so we sort of just coast along. Like a pilot who is piloting a plane and doesn't care about the weather conditions. You see, both of them are making the same grave error. They don't realize that they have an enemy who hates them and doesn't want them to know how he works and what he does. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 9, Peter is writing to the Christians there. And he tells them, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He says he prowls, and the idea behind prowl is that it's sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we don't notice it. Sometimes it doesn't stare us in the face. It, the devil sometimes works in such a way that you really cannot discern, or you really, if you're not sensitive to God and to his spirit and to the community that God has given you, you won't know that it's the devil at work. We have an enemy sometimes who uses stealth. But why was the devil doing all of this? Why was the devil blocking Paul's plan? Something that God had committed into his hands. The answer is in verses 19 to 20. Let's look at that part. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you, Thessalonians? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. And you read that on the one hand, and it feels very strange. Like, Paul, I thought Jesus was your joy. I thought Jesus was the one you were glorying in and rejoicing in. How come now you are saying it's the Thessalonians? But you see, for Paul, there was no rejoicing in the Thessalonians that wasn't a rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Because all that was accomplished in the life of the Thessalonians was only accomplished because of Jesus Christ. The devil was aiming at Paul, stopping his plans because the devil wanted to attack his joy. And can I suggest to you, friends, that when the devil attacks us, when the devil is at work in our lives, this is what he's aiming for. The devil is not aiming for you not to have a pleasant life primarily. The devil is aiming for your joy in Christ to become depleted and diminished and so that you just walk through life not remembering who Christ is and what he can do and who he is. The devil didn't attack Paul alone. He attacked the Thessalonians. And can I suggest to you that sometimes the devil is going to not attack you primarily as an individual. He's going to apply, attack people related to you or circumstances related to you. Sometimes not for them primarily, but for you so that your joy in Christ is diminished. And your joy in Christ becomes nothing. Friends, you are hated. You are hated by the devil because you belong to Christ. Or maybe you are not a Christian here and you are saying, this is exactly one of the things I don't like about being a Christian. All these hate, spiritual warfare, fighting things, I don't want to have anything to do with it. 
I don't want to be living and remembering that Satan hates me. I don't want to have anything to do. I just want to live free. But don't you see? The devil hates you as well. Don't you know that when people buy chickens for Christmas, they feed them all the way from January to November? And then when it's time to slaughter them, they bring them out and slaughter you. And if you're not a Christian, can I just gently say to you that that is what the devil does in your life. The devil is not, he's not loving you. He's not giving you all the things you want because he has your own interests in, in, at heart. The devil hates you and he's giving you all the things you want so that he can lead you down the path that he wants for you. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we have an enemy who hates us. And many of us don't survive when life happens because we do not realize this truth. We have an enemy who hates us. But you see, friends, the point of this passage is not to say that everything that happens in your life is as a result of the devil. But the point of this passage is to say that every circumstance you face in your life will be exploited by the devil. So maybe your finances is in a mess. Maybe it's your stupidity and not planning well that led you down that path. But you see, the devil wants to exploit that so that he can lead you further down a path of gambling and dependency on other people so that you won't work hard. Maybe your marriage is in a mess. You are the one that betrayed your wife. You are the one that looked at things that you shouldn't have looked at or said what you shouldn't have said or did what you shouldn't have done. So it was you, but you see, the devil wants to exploit that so that there can be tension between your home, so that there won't be any reconciliation, and so that you guys can go apart and your marriage can disintegrate. Maybe you haven't been able to make career progress. Maybe things are really difficult and tough for you at work. And really, it's not because of anything. It is you. You are, you are a bad team player. You are someone that people don't like to work with. But you see, the devil wants to exploit that so that you can live in a cycle of anger at other people and so that you can further go down the path of bitterness and brokenness and not achieve what God has called you to. Or maybe it's your health, right? Maybe this one is not your fault, but it is just the broken system in which we find ourselves. And you have been trying and, and ensuring that maybe you can find a good doctor. And all of that hasn't come to pass. All of that hasn't worked out well. You see, the devil wants to exploit that so that he can live in anger and bitterness to God and never trust him and depend on him for anything. Sometimes the devil attacks us directly. Sometimes he doesn't. But you see, in all of these things, the devil is working and scheming and plotting so that he can exploit every situation and circumstance we experience in our lives for his own ends. We have an enemy who hates us. When you became a Christian, the devil printed out a most wanted poster and your face was on it. We have an enemy who hates us. So how did Paul survive this? How did Paul survive this? Before I say anything, there's a resource um, on our Theology in Lagos page called Spiritual Warfare. I think it's about three or four parts. Where Pastor Femi, three parts. Where Pastor Femi goes at length into spiritual warfare. And there's a whole lot there that I can't say now. So I'll commend you to go and listen or watch that um, when you do have the time. But can I say, 
that one of the things that is most underrated that we do not do always, because we're always looking for something super, is prayer and reading the Bible. Someone said, hmm. <laughs> Why is it that we think that there is a magic pill apart from reading God's word and praying to God that will get us the results we want in life? Friends, there will never come a day in your life where you do not need to keep reading the word of God and praying to God. The only time that will happen is when human beings stop breathing in oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide. In other words, when you are dead. As long as we are in this world, God has given us his resource in his world so that our mind is expanded, so that we see things the way he wants us to see things, so that we gaze upon his glory, and out of that we go into our world and do what he has called us to do. Pray and read the Bible. But you see, secondly, Paul does something in this passage. Paul focuses on his joy. He knew that the devil was attacking him because of the Thessalonians. And what does he do? It is those same Thessalonians that he decides that I'm going to focus on and I'm going to write on, write to at this particular point in time. Focus on your joy. And when I'm saying focus on your joy, what do I mean? It means focus on the things that are working out well, even when other things that you're longing for aren't working out well. Some of us moan and complain about all the things that we're trusting God for, all the things that we're hoping for, all the things we've planned for, that aren't working out well, whereas God is doing other things in your life. I know someone in this church who, at some point, they were struggling with um, having a child. And eventually, God came through, and the person sent a text message, and he was saying, when we were struggling with this thing, God was at work in our lives in this way. God was providing for us. God was growing our business. God was doing other things for us. So that even though we didn't have this thing that we're trusting him for, he was doing other things in our lives. Focus on your joy. Focus on the things that God is doing in your life. But you see, secondly, also focus on the things that aren't working out in your life and turn them into truths about the gospel. What do I mean? So maybe you have been praying and trusting God to get married. Or maybe to have a child. And it seems like, men, I've hoped and prayed, I've, I've done everything, I've, I've strategized, I've done everything that anybody can do. I go out, I meet people, but somehow it doesn't work, and I'm still longing and hoping for this thing. Well, what does Isaiah 54 say? Isaiah 54 says, sing, O barren one, you who have no spouse. Your maker has made you your husband. He will give you your own children. In other words, in the gospel, even though you don't have a child, even though you don't have a spouse, you are more loved than you ever knew. In the gospel, you are not defined by the things that you don't have. In the gospel, you are defined by who and what God has promised to give you for all of life and eternity, namely himself. Sometimes we are so obsessed about the things that aren't working, but focus on your joy. Take this situation, this circumstance, this thing that I'm hoping and trusting God for, and take it as something that the gospel speaks to. And even though I'm not seeing this thing working out, I'm meditating on the truth of the gospel. And that is affecting how I see myself. In the gospel, we are not defined by what you do not have. We are defined by whose you are. 
Yes, so maybe somebody hasn't professed love to you, but guess what? The person who matters most in the whole world has professed his own love to you. Guess what? He even went a step further and gave his own life for you. Your boyfriend will never do that. You have been loved by Christ. Amen. Focus on your joy. But you see, secondly, what does Paul do? Or thirdly, Paul seeks other people's welfare. In chapter, in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul decides that he is going to send a messenger and he is going to go and see how are these people doing to ensure that they are still okay, they have survived. Can I suggest to you that sometimes the pain that happens in your life can be an occasion for ministry? So, you've been writing jam for 20 years. It hasn't worked out. <laughs> Can that be an occasion where you decide to serve other people who maybe don't have the same situation and struggles that you're having, and you give yourself to them, to serve them and care for them? Seek other people's welfare. But lastly, we see Paul here. He knows his limits. Know your limits. In chapter 3, verse 2, of all the things that Paul could have done, this is very interesting, Paul decides to send Timothy there. Why? He's an apostle after all. Like, literally, he can, he can pray. After all, it has happened to Philip, right? He can pray and ask, I want to appear there. Or he can decide that I'm going to go there. No, but he decides to send somebody else. Know your limits. I'm afraid that sometimes when life happens to us, that is when many of us decide that we want to become insulated. We don't need people around us. Many of us decide that, yes, I got into this trouble. I'm in this trouble, but I am Superman. I'll find my way out of it. So you want to be sort of alone. I want to process it alone. I don't need anybody around me. You people are disturbing me. You people don't know what it is I'm going through. Yes, maybe people don't know what it is you are going through, but friends, God has given you people so that you can travel and journey with. Know your limits. If you need help, ask. You say, oh, you make me look weak. But yes, that is precisely the point. We are all weak. None of us is strong and sufficient by ourselves. We need Jesus. We need his strength. And we need his people. Know your limits. Paul decides, I'm not going to go there. I will send Timothy to go. How do we survive when life happens? Know that you have an enemy. Pray and feast on the word of God. Focus on your joys. Seek other people's welfare and know your limits. But the second step that we see Paul taking here is saying, You have a destiny. You have a destiny. I love dry jokes. As some of you can tell, um, if you watch my, uh, my Instagram story, which is really like once in seven weeks, and my WhatsApp status, I love dry jokes. In fact, in secondary school, I had a reputation as a dry joker. I was a connoisseur of dry jokes. So let me bless you guys with one of my favorite ones, my original ones. Why do we say amen? Anybody? Why do we say amen? Shall I tell you guys? 
was promised to laugh. <laughs> we say amen because we sing hymns and not hers. <laughs> I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> but I can tell you guys more, but we don't have time. So I, I will spare you guys. I won't, I won't tell you. I won't tell you more. But there's this other one that I like. It's not original to me. So you see somebody who is wearing sunshades in the night. And then you ask the person, why are you wearing sunshades? And the person says, my future is very bright. (laughs) Say, great dry joke. My future is very bright. Or in other words, my destiny is very bright. And Paul says, yes, your destiny is very bright if you're a Christian. Your destiny is so bright that God will lead you on the path of suffering. <laughs> Look at verse 4 and 5 when he writes to the Thessalonians. Actually, from verse 3. He says, So that no one will be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. Every time we think of destiny as human beings, we think of this very glorious life where we are in an isolated island and we have everything we want, all the money we want, all the happiness and joy we want. But Paul says when you are in Christ, yes, all of that is going to happen, but the path you are on is that you are destined for trials and tribulation. And we see that not just in this passage. In Acts chapter 14, Paul has just preached the gospel. He's doing God's work. And he was stoned in one city in Iconium. He leaves Iconium. He goes to Lystra. The same thing happens to him. He goes to Derby. They reject him there. And when Paul is traveling back, what does he say to these people? He says, keep the faith. Stand strong. Because through many trials and tribulations, we will enter into the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way, rounding off his very long ministry in Ephesus. He's been ministering there and doing great things. And as he's traveling back and journeying, he says, Now I'm compelled by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what is going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit tells me that prison and hardships are facing me. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is writing to other believers in verses 8 and 9, which we referenced earlier. He says, yes, you have an adversary, a roaring lion who is prowling, so stay alert, be on the watch. But he says in verse 9, that know that all these things have been accomplished in the family of believers throughout the world, and they are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Do you see? When you are a Christian, your destiny is not just the location that is waiting for you. Your destiny is not the place you are in Christ. Your destiny is also the path of trial and tribulation that God is going to lead you on as well. And I'm afraid that sometimes we as Christians, particularly in the city of Lagos, we sort of pick and choose which parts of the gospel that we want. Yes, Jesus is for us. Yes, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Yes, God makes us whole and new. But we do also need to know that the way God works in our lives and accomplishes all the things that he does in our lives is also through pain and suffering. Sometimes we're like people who are eating fried rice. 
You know those people? Those people that they, they are spoiled spots. You sell them fried rice, and then what do they do? They pick fork, and they start removing the green peas. They start removing all of those things, right? No, no, it's a whole meal. It came together. I don't know why some people are looking at me. <laughs> we can't pick and choose. We can't pick and choose. Friends, your identity in Christ, your address in Jesus determines all the packages that you receive. If you are in number 90, Lekki Street, you can't receive the packages for number 80, Lekki Street. When you joined Christ, you didn't just say, oh yes, I want all the blessings and all the joys and all the happiness that Jesus brings. You're also saying, I want all the hardship, all the pain, all the suffering that comes along with being a child of God. Why? Why is this the case? Why are we destined for this? Paul says in verse 5 that he was concerned about their faith, so that's why he sent them. But then in chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, he says that their faith had produced a reputation around the world and they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, how God grows us and matures us in the faith is by causing us to go through hardships so that the idolatries and the things that we love apart from Christ in our lives are stripped away. God causes us to go on this path, this destiny, so that we can be read of idols. Do you see, friends? God is more concerned about who you are becoming than what you are accomplishing. And I feel that sometimes many of us are so obsessed with all the things that we want to accomplish and all the things that we want to do for God and for humanity and so that people can know us. But God is not just concerned about what you are accomplishing. God is concerned about who you are becoming. And so God will often lead us down the path of hardship, of suffering, of trials as a believer so that we are refined and we can come out as the goal that he wants us to be. Why is it that people often say, I went through a hard time, but that was also when I got to know Christ better? It is because somehow as human beings, when everything is going well for us in life, we don't remember God. Or we remember him, but he's sort of on the margins of our life. But when things aren't working out, he becomes front and center, and we meditate on him, we meditate on his glory, we get to know him better. God calls us often on the path of suffering. We are destined for this so that our faith can become refined and we are stripped of idols. So, friends, this means that we must be ruthless about eliminating the mindset of comfort in our lives. You know, the prosperity gospel takes a hit, sometimes rightly. But I wonder if many of us who say we don't believe in this prosperity gospel, we don't believe that if you're a Christian, everything must always be working out for you, whether we are not functionally living in the truth of the prosperity gospel. Why is it that when hard things happen to us, we say, why me? Why? It is because somewhere deep down in our spirits, we believe, I don't really deserve this. I'm generous. I'm kind. I love people. I serve. I give. Why should it be me? Why not fill in the blank? 
We must be ruthless about eliminating comfort in our lives. This means, friends, that not every time feasting, sometimes fasting. Because what we see in the Bible is that fasting often indicates that, Lord, I want to strip myself of the things that I'm meant to be comfortable in, that I'm meant to possess, and I want to delight more in you. It means that sometimes when God blesses you, it is not for you to expand or enlarge your lifestyle. It is so that you can be more generous with your resources. It means that sometimes we go out of our way for people who make us uncomfortable, who are sort of socially awkward. We put, our places in, we put ourselves in places where we can serve them and love them and care for them. We are ruthless about eliminating comfort and idols in our life so that we can become what God has destined us to be. You see, friends, in military strategy, they often talk about tactical victories and strategic defeats. Tactical victories and strategic defeats. What do I mean? So now everybody has been talking about Ukraine and Russia. And it's making some people sort of think back to World War II and how World War II started. And how that during World War II, um, Russia was the one who was invaded, but this time by Germany. And so Germany invades Russia. And what actually happens is that Germany successfully invades Russia. But the cost of the invasion was so high that they were not able to follow on with the, strategy, with the victory that they had secured. They achieved a tactical victory, but they suffered a strategic defeat because in the end of the war, they lost the war. Sometimes God will allow the devil to accomplish tactical victories in your life because of the strategic victories that he wants to accomplish over Satan in your life. You are suffering hardship. You will suffer hardship because God has a glorious and bright destiny for you. And sometimes he needs to put us on the path of hardship and suffering so that we can become what he has destined for us to become. Can I just encourage some of you here? Maybe God has done stuff in your life and God has sort of brought you out of a difficult season. Please share your story. Because what you see, your story is not just your story. Your story is a documentary of what God can do in a life when it is submitted and yielded to him. And so what you are doing when you don't share your story because I'm a private person, I don't really want to, is you are depriving other people of the grace that they can receive from learning about what God can do in their own life even in the midst of their suffering. We suffer hardship because we are destined for this. Do you see how much of a difference this makes in your mindset? When, you are, when life happens, you suddenly realize that it's not because God doesn't love me or God doesn't care for me. It's because I have an enemy, but I also have a destiny. But the last thing we see here, friends, is that you have an example. You have an example. In chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, which Dami preached from last week, Paul says that you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is a new location that is given to you that is different from where you are physically as well. They became imitators of God's churches. Who? does the church belong to? It belongs to Jesus. In other words, they became imitators of Jesus. 
And I could link here from here and go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 that tells us that part of the reason why we are called to suffer is because we are called to follow Christ and to walk in his steps. But I think Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 to 10 gives us a better and clearer picture. So I'll just read it. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Next verse, please. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What do we see here? We see that Jesus also suffered. In verse 7, it talks about Jesus suffering death on the cross. But see, friends, Jesus' suffering was not just the death on the cross. Jesus suffered in becoming what he wasn't at one point in time. You see, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. But when Jesus became human, Jesus put on the very limitations of our human nature. Jesus became tired. Jesus couldn't be awake for three days on end. Jesus had to sleep. Jesus had to rest. Jesus became familiar with the very things, the very hardships of a day-to-day human being living in the world. Jesus became limited by time and space. He couldn't be everywhere at the same time. Jesus could only be in one place at the same time. And so Jesus knew the frustration of trying to do things that you wanted to do, but somehow you are incapacitated from doing it. Jesus suffered. We see, friends, Jesus also had a destiny. We're told in verse 9 that when Jesus had gone through all of these things, it was so that he could be made perfect. And maybe you are reading that and you are wondering, like, Seriously? I thought Jesus was God. How is it that he had need to be made perfect? You see, I did law. Um, And what you call sort of like a failed lawyer. And in law school, there is this concept called being fit and proper. What does it mean to be fit and proper? It means that a person, to become a lawyer, you must demonstrate that you're a person of integrity, a person who, who works hard, a person who won't mismanage funds, a person who won't do evil and bad things so that you can be qualified for the ethics of the legal profession. And so some people, along the way, people sometimes stumble, people get into bad situations, and so they can't quite make it. But those who made it, made it because, not because they started becoming something that they weren't. They made it because they were already that thing and they demonstrated that they were qualified to become it. Do you see what I'm saying? When the Bible talks about Jesus becoming perfect, it was not that Jesus had need to become perfect because he wasn't perfect. Rather, it is because Jesus demonstrated his perfectness for the role and so that he could be the one who becomes our advocate before God. Jesus was made perfect by the things he suffered. Jesus stayed the course, friends. Jesus went all the way to the end. In other words, Jesus is our example because he suffered, but also because he had a destiny. But you see, if this is where the gospel leaves us, then we'll be hopeless. Because it will be like having a mathematics example for a sum that you're meant to do. Has anyone used the textbooks Understanding Mathematics? Or Lacombe? Or New General Mathematics? 
Here's what happens. As you sort of go along, the examples initially make sense, right? Two plus two. Oh, two plus two. One, two. One, two. Oh, four. But somewhere along the line, it starts getting complicated. And you see the example in front of you, but somehow, for the life of me, you can't just work out, how does this example translate into this question they've given me? So as a very good Nigerian child who believed that my parents could do all things, all things, literally all things, they, they could fly if they wanted to fly. Of course, mathematics questions are easy peasy for parents. So in primary four, we had this question that was given to us. It was understanding mathematics. That's why I can never forget it. Never. I will never forget it. So I had struggled because I hated math. Um, and I decided to give my mom and my dad. Now, here's the problem. They are both very bright people. But my dad was a teacher in history. <laughs> very well studied, but it was history. My mom had a business in fashion design and baking. Of course, mathematics problems would be easy for them, right? So I gave it to the first person. I can't remember who he was. And she was like, I think, let's, let's just say what my mom, she was like, oh. <laughs> I think this is what it means. So, but to be sure, right? Because you are never really sure. To be sure, she decided to give it to my dad. And my dad says, no, this is not what it means. But he also didn't quite know what it meant. So he decided it was something else that it meant. And so they agree between themselves and they tell me the answer to this mathematics question. Let's just say, when I got to school the following day, I learned a lesson that my parents could not do everything they wanted. Example does not translate into power. But then my mom, actually, my mom is a very fantastic driver. She's a, like, she's the kind of person that she can drive anything, like literally anything. When my dad first knew her, he met her driving a bus. This was in the 80s, okay? So, like, she can drive anything. She's a better driver than he is by far. She taught me how to drive. But you see, as I was learning how to drive, in fact, the very first day she taught me how to drive was the very first day I started driving. My sister who learned from my dad, it took her another three days before she started driving. <laughs> but it was the very first day I started driving. And so often, I put the L plate at the back of the car. I put the L plate at the back of the car and we'll be driving. But as a learner, sometimes I got stuck. I had the example in my head, but I was stuck. But you see, my mom was beside me. And so even though she was the example, she could then coach me and say, no, this is what you do when you're climbing this slope. Hold down the clutch and then press the, the, the accelerator and you'll be able to move. You see, because she was beside me, because she was present with me, it wasn't just an example in a textbook. It was the very presence that helped me through. In chapter 10, in chapter 5 of Hebrews, verses 9 to 10, he says, Now we have Jesus who becomes our high priest and he is there interceding for us in the presence of God. Jesus is not just an example that is removed from our suffering. Jesus is an example that is present with us in our suffering. So that when we are going through the hardships and difficulties of life, he's not just telling us what to do, he's guiding us along the way. Friends, we have one in the person of Jesus who suffered like us, who had a destiny 
but he fulfilled his destiny and he ensures that because he fulfilled his destiny, you also will fulfill your destiny. This is how you survive when life happens. Yes, you, you, you pray. Yes, you focus on your joys. Yes, you, you ask God for how you can intercede and help other people. Yes, you realize that you have a destiny and God is somehow at work. But all of these things turn to nothing if you are not depending and living in the power that Christ supplies. Jesus is not just our example. Jesus is our empowered example because he's there with us, interceding in the presence of God but also there with us as we go through our suffering. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.